Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is altogether true. It's trustworthy. That uh, uh, we can look to it and learn the ways to cope with the life that we have, the um, struggles of our day. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would uh, guide us through it today. In thy name we ask it. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with this verse. We know that God wants us to be thankful. There are numerous commands in Scripture to be thankful. So I'm going to show you one other passage that makes it abundantly clear that God expects his people to be filled with a heart of gratitude. Uh, this is Colossians 3, 15 through 17. And I'll highlight the thanksgiving commands. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In just three verses, the apostle instructs that thankfulness is to be a central part of the life of the Christian. Verse 15 speaks of it corporately as a whole church body. Verse 16 speaks of it as something that's to arise from within our hearts in an internal expression that finds a natural outlet in song. Verse 17 lets us know that it's something that ought to be part of everything we do in life, whether the things we say, the things we do. Thankfulness should be a part of it. But I think we struggle with having thankfulness be as pervasive and influential in our lives as God intends. And I think the reason is because we have to put up with many things that would make thankfulness uh, seem almost out of place. Let me name a few that are common to Christians all around the world. Pain, suffering, persecution, disability, aging, weakness, Poverty, being misunderstood, having to work with fools, mean people, violent people, wars, injustice, backstabbers, liars, mockers, greedy people, lawbreakers who seem to get away with it. And I could go on and on, and so could you. There's all kinds of things that we have to put up with in this life. But God is not ignorant of the kind of world in which we live, and he still gives the command. Paul says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, to be thankful. So the question is, how? How can we be obedient to this command if we're suffering pain, or we're in poverty, or, or there's injustice, or we're being mocked, or we have to deal with fools? I think we find the answer as we read Philippians chapter 1. So I want us to walk through about half of the chapter in light of Paul's attitude of thanksgiving that's reflected throughout it. And remember, the command is this. In everything, give thanks, not for 
everything give thanks. Catch the difference? In everything give thanks. Not for everything give thanks. So we're going to look at uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And he begins, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think gratitude begins with a self-image that says, I am a slave for the love of my master. I am a slave for the love of my master. Paul himself and Timothy, he refers to as bond servants. And that term means a slave that is a slave voluntarily for the love of the master. It's based on a passage and a tradition that was sometimes practiced in Israel. We find it described in Exodus chapter 21. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he's the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to the master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, that would be to the tabernacle or the temple. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Now, I don't know if the Apostle Paul ever pierced his ear as a symbol for his service to his Savior, Jesus Christ, but this was his attitude. He belonged to God and would serve him without any expectation of ever being released from that obligation of service. If God's people to whom he ministered would not pay him, well, he would work as a tent maker. If God would give him a wife, he would take her. But if God chose for him to serve without a wife, well, that was fine. He was at God's service 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of his life, and this produced the gratitude of job security. You know, he never needed to worry about not having a job. He would always have the job of serving Christ no matter what. And he served because he loved his Lord and considered it the highest privilege to be able to serve Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now let me ask you a question. Would it be a privilege for a young man or a young woman to be able to intern in the White House of the United States of America? Of course it would. Do you want to know some people who were interns in Congress or congressional pages? Well, one name you would probably recognize is Bill Gates. And there are many governors and congressmen and Supreme Court justices that first served as pages in halls of Congress or uh, interns in the Supreme Court. The privilege of serving that close to the highest seat of power in the land gives you an advantage when you leave that service. Now, as the servant of the God of the universe, we have the advantage of being close to the highest seat of power that could ever be, and that seat of power is eternal and goes far beyond this life. Can we be thankful for that? Absolutely. And we see that attitude of gratitude expressed by the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm going to 
do something through the course of this message. I'm going to have these little slides that come up say, repeat after me. So I'll read the slide, and then you read it with me the second time through. I'm thankful that I serve the almighty God of the universe who has control over all powers. My Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now read it with me. I am thankful that I serve the almighty God of the universe who has control over all powers. My Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The thing that Paul and Timothy wanted the people of Philippi to receive from this relationship with them was grace and peace. But grace and peace are elements that actually belong to their employer, God. They're in a position to ask God to grant grace and peace to those whom they are serving on his behalf. And that's an attitude of gratitude to ask for grace and peace for another. So we can repeat this. I thank God that because I'm blessed with this high position, I can bless others by giving them grace and living with them in peace. Repeat with me. I thank God that because I am blessed with this high position, I can bless others by giving them grace and living with them in peace. Then Paul goes on in giving thanks for these fellow saints. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And even though we have a sufficiency in the privilege of serving God, there can be a sense of depression in doing it all alone. God designed us for fellowship, and we are better together. Paul recognizes that he has partners in prayer and partners in help in his proclamation of the gospel with these saints in Philippi. And he recognizes this as a part of God's provision for him, and he's grateful. He expresses that this is not only to God, but also to them because they're responding to God and offering him their friendship and partnership. So we can say this, I thank God that I am not alone in serving him here. Let's say that one. I thank God that I'm not alone in serving him here. Paul goes on. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You know that in doing ministry of planting churches and sharing the gospel, Paul had to work with all kinds of people and none of them were perfect. That is... They all had their flaws and quirks and failings and foibles. But Paul's confidence was that the work that was being done in them was a work of God. God is the one who begins the work of salvation in us, and he is also the one who will have enough patience to never give up on us in spite of ourselves. Isn't that wonderful? God has proven himself to be true to his word, and the truest friend a person could ever have. So the fact that they are not perfect does not make Paul decide that they're not worth working with. And even though in this very letter, he's going to have to plead with two women to work together, and he's going to have to remind them all to have a singular mind and spirit, and he will tell them bluntly to stop grumbling and complaining, even in spite of all that, he makes this statement about the fact that God's eternal purpose of their complete maturity in Christ will come about in God's time. What a blessing for which we can be grateful. 
Do you ever just about get fed up with a Christian brother or sister who kind of can't seem to get their life together under God's glory? This verse tells you, take heart. (laughs) Take heart. It's God's job. It's not yours. I tell you, I've had Christian brothers and sisters whom I've had to rebuke for bad attitudes, have had to bring church discipline against for adultery, have had to call to account for sinful greed and doing things that dishonored the name of the Lord who bought them. And I still love them. And as God worked in in many of their lives, I've had them return and thank me for the rebuke or for being a friend enough to tell them the truth that they needed to hear and yet not forsaking them as a friend. You see, we all need to recognize that none of us has arrived as yet at the perfection that is the life of Christ perfectly reflected in our lives. If someone else seems to struggle more than we do in certain areas, we can encourage them with truth, but also in gratitude that we've not had to walk their path. God is the one who is responsible and capable to complete the work of making us like Jesus. And he will keep working both in me and in all those who know him as their personal Savior, and we can praise God for that. So let's think of it this way. God is not finished with me yet, and God is not finished with you yet, so we can thank God for each other just as we are brothers in process. Let's repeat that one. God is not finished with me yet, and God is not finished with you yet, so we can thank God for each other just as we are brothers in process. He goes on, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel you all are partakers of grace with me for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, Paul is also thankful for proven affection. What I mean is that this affection between brothers and sisters in Christ flows both ways. Paul genuinely loves these people with a brotherly love that's from his heart, and he also feels their genuine affection for him. This kind of affection only happens in a relationship where there's equality and openness and vulnerability to one another. Many churches lack this affection because people won't be open with each other and will not become vulnerable to one another to trust one another. Paul and the Philippian Christians had the openness to share one another's needs for prayer and support. This is not a relationship based upon, you know, one hour a week together at a morning worship service. This is a relationship in which lives are woven together, working on projects together and studying the word together and eating and praying together. It's based on suffering with one another as they go through various trials. Who do you have in your life that you would actually say, I have them in my heart? I know that they'll stand by me through thick and thin. Be grateful for such people. And be grateful for such relationships because in this world they are rare. Within the church they should be common. And they are a common cause for thanksgiving. This does not mean that it will always be easy to love. But if you let God's love flow through you, you will grow in the knowledge of God's love and they can grow in the knowledge of God's love. I think of a lady in the first church where I was a teaching pastor and 
I, I came to that pastor. My mother had told me, oh, Ronnie, don't go to that church. All they know how to do is fight. They'd been through four pastorates in five years. And uh, my mom was right. <laughs> and I remember one of the first board meetings, uh, there was a lady that stood up. That, by the way, that one of the things they fought about was money. And uh, there were three different checkbooks. Uh, a lot of mess in that church. And uh, there was one lady that stood up and she had the reputation of being a lady with enough tongue for 10 rows of teeth, I'll tell you. Um, she, uh, she could fillet you from 40 feet away with her tongue. And she got up and made some statements about where she was going to give her money. And it's like the Spirit of God came on me and I think I'd maybe been there two, three months and I stood up and I pointed at her and I rebuked her in the name of the Lord. You have an ungodly attitude towards money. And God won't be honored in it no matter what if you give it that way. And I thought in the back of my head, well, this is going to be a short pastorate for me too. <laughs> she came up to me after that meeting and she said, thank you, pastor. Now I know you love me because you'd tell me the truth about myself that I needed to hear. Later in that ministry, my wife got sick. And that lady found me at the laundromat doing laundry. Joanne couldn't do it uh, through the things that were happening to her. And she says, Pastor, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing laundry. <laughs> Joanne... Joanne can't do it, and, and uh, so I'm, I'm taking care of it. She said, well, you shouldn't be doing laundry. <laughs> and uh, the next week, she and another lady of the church showed up at my front door, and they said, Pastor, give me your laundry. I said, I, I don't think so. And she says, I'm not going away till you give me your laundry. And I thought, well, I better gather it up. <laughs> And so I gathered it up and I gave it to her and for probably six months, every week she came and she took our baskets of laundry and did that laundry and delivered it back and the shirts were ironed and everything was folded beautifully. It was a, one of the most beautiful acts of service that I could ever have had and it was very needful. I tell you, I have that woman in my heart. I have that woman in my heart. And I know I was in her heart, too. Repeat with me, I thank God that he will love others through me to their benefit, and he has loved me through others to my benefit. I'm going to ask you to do something here. Stand up as we repeat this one. Stand up. This is an interactive message, say. All right, so let's read this one together. I thank God that he will love others through me to their benefit, and he has loved me through others to my benefit. Now turn around and hug somebody. Okay, you can sit down. Enough hugging now.
Paul goes on. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a verse of 1 Corinthians that tells us what love feels like when it's true love from God. Let me share it with you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. This is what Paul is praying about for these brothers and sisters. He prays that their love may abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. There are so many things that are projected as belonging to the authentic expression of love in Christ. I read a blog the other day that uh, Vanessa Hall, who was one of our, uh, the wife of, of my worship leader in Marquette, Kansas, and the, the blog was questioning whether this young generation of radical Christians are staying properly focused on Jesus, and it's, it's possible for faith to become you know, popular in a circle of believers, and especially for it to lurk like certain activities. And as good and genuine as all those radical activities may seem to be, things like studying theology and striving for simplicity and going on short-term mission tips, letting loose with abandon in worship, it's always possible to begin looking for the reward of the approval of peers rather than the approval of Jesus in those very activities. And when that happens, we may be doing the right things but have the wrong heart motivations for those things. And every generation has to deal with this reality because authentic Christianity flows from the heart of God to the heart of the believers and then it resonates from heart to heart of those who love Jesus. And that resonance of the echoes of the heavenly heartbeat in the heart of a friend who is a Christian is what fills us with joy and fellowship with one another that is true joy. During my years of ministry in Norfolk, God moved in that church to fill people with love and compassion for orphans. And within the course of about five years, we saw 19 families adopt children. Some of them were foreign adoptions, some were U.S. adoptions, and that was not just families who wanted more children. Most of those families already had their own children. But out of the love of God flowing through their hearts, they found the commitment to adopt others. And today I find myself being Facebook friends with numbers of those children that were adopted and I get to see what God has done in rescuing them from places like Russia and Romania through adoption to a United States family, Christian family. Repeat with me, I thank God that he has given me people in my life who resonate with the true love of God from heaven and help me know heaven and true love better. I thank God that he has given me people in my life who resonate with the true love of God from heaven and help me know heaven and true love better. Paul goes on, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. This verse gives us a key understanding of Paul's ability to give thanks in everything. You see, for him, his life was less important than his mission. And his mission was the progress of the gospel. For him, his life was less important than his message. 
and his message was the gospel. And for him, his life was less important than his mandate. And his mandate was to make disciples of all nations. And his life was less important than his master. And his master was Jesus Christ. When you have that perspective on your life, it means that things that could seem like they are adversarial and contradictory to your goals can become avenues for fulfilling your purpose in life. So here we find Paul being held in prison on his way to Rome to appear before Caesar, who's not a believer. He's a deluded megalomaniac who wants to be called a god. And Paul is rejoicing and filled with gratitude. How? How? So he goes on, so my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The Praetorian Guard was Caesar's guard. And a, a look at Paul's perspective on his captivity. Now, the kind of captivity he has is he's chained to guards 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the guards have shifts in which there are four guards at a time to keep Paul under lock and key. And it's likely that there were four shifts, so there are 16 Roman guards that keep watch over Paul. And, in his, uh, and if his Jewish enemies, who of course had threatened to kill him, want to get him, they have to get through these guards. In addition, Paul sees these guards, each one as a potential new Christian, once they hear the gospel. And so... He has a captive audience. He gets to preach to the guards and they can't get away when they're, until their shift is over. It's like Paul is saying, well, God has given me this wonderful opportunity to preach to these guards who are part of Caesar's very court and they can't get away from me. They're tied to me. Isn't this great, you know? And some of them are believing in Jesus and understanding the gospel and I understand that it's, it's spreading all through all of the guards. Praise God. I thank God that those to whom I witness cannot escape the truth of the gospel. Let's repeat that. I thank God that those to whom I witness cannot escape the truth of the gospel. He goes on, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So when the other people in the church at Philippi see how Paul views his imprisonment as an advantage for the gospel rather than a disadvantage for himself, they become emboldened to be able to witness. It's likely that the greatest fear that Christians had at the time was of the Roman army. And here is Paul being held by the Roman army's elite corps, the Praetorian Guard. This would be like being held by SEAL Team 6. These were the elite fighting men of the day. If they decided to take you out, you would be taken out. <laughs> and Paul is witnessing to them without fear. The ordinary Christian would begin to think, you know, maybe God can protect me anywhere. Or even if he did not, the gospel is more important than just my life. As Paul sees this kind of attitude travel through the Christian community, he can thank God. And so we know, I can thank God that if I witness, it will encourage others 
to witness. Repeat that. I can thank God that if I witness, it will encourage others to witness. Paul goes on, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And here Paul recognizes that there can be hypocrisy in the church and various Christians who might even preach the gospel with wrong motive, motivations. There are those who are doing it to help Paul's mission of spreading the gospel, and there's those who seem to be doing it to somehow try to supersede Paul and make him have more distress at being put in prison. And Paul recognizes something in all of this. He's not the judge of the motives of other people's hearts. That's God's job. And Paul understands that the pure gospel has a power of its own, regardless of those who preach it. I'm reminded of Christian psychologist and author Dan Allender, who tells the story of having a friend through high school and college, the friend's name was Tremper Longman III, that continually witnessed to him. And he had heard the gospel again and again, but he had rejected it personally because he was having too much fun doing drugs and living a wild life. But when one of his girlfriends had a bad trip on drugs and was dealing with deep depression so she wanted to kill herself, he shared the gospel with her as he had heard it. And he told her that if she trusted Jesus, she could find a life worth living. And so she trusted Christ as her Savior. And the first thing he told her was, well, I know that Jesus is what you needed, but now that you're going to have him, you're going to have to stop hanging around with me because I'll simply be a bad influence on you. <laughs> you can't be a good Christian and a dope addict, and I'm, I'm feeding your dope addiction. Now, eventually, Dan did become a Christian and began serving the Lord with his life. Repeat with me, I thank God that it is not my job to judge the motives of everybody that preaches the gospel. Okay? I thank God that it's not my job to judge the motives of everybody that preaches the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. It's so interesting to note that Satan is trying every way to get Paul and the gospel confined and to keep it from spreading in the Roman Empire. He's tried persecution. He's tried putting the leaders in prison. He's tried putting the toughest guards in the Roman army in charge of the imprisoned leader. He's tried discouragement by having other preachers preach with wrong motives. Nothing has worked to stop the gospel and to stop the apostle from being thankful to God. Nothing can keep this man from experiencing joy in the Lord. Why? Because this man's life was less important to him than the mission and the message and the mandate and the master. And those things kept growing and multiplying and the master continues to be glorified in it all. It is as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has a plan for our lives that will result in glorifying him if we walk according to his plan. As we abide in Christ, we will produce fruit unto God that he has planned for us to produce. We are promised that by Jesus. In John 15, 5, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. 
I can thank God that no circumstance devised by Satan can stop the gospel and the Lord from being glorified in my life as long as my life is less important to me than the gospel and the Lord. Will you repeat that one with me? I thank God that no circumstance devised by Satan can stop the gospel and the Lord from being glorified in my life as long as my life is less important to me than the gospel and the Lord. As we approach the Thanksgiving season, dedicate yourself to seeing all of your life according to God's furtherance of his kingdom purposes and thank him for allowing you to be part of his work in the world. I thank God that through Christ I am a part of God's work of bringing his love to the world. And this is all a testimony to that. This is all a testimony to that. Let's say this together. I thank God that through Christ I'm a part of God's work of bringing his love to the world. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the wonderful blessings that you give to us. You are so great. Your love is beyond our comprehension. And you shower us with it. And we praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.